so that being said, um, we're going to start just a, a, a series on worship from the Hijacked series. You guys remember we did Hijacked on Justice, right? How we talked about how justice was hijacked from the church, how really that's our movement, that's our call. We spent a lot of time just looking at all the justice verses in the Bible. And we've seen that we are to be the just ones. And so today we will look at worship. And some may say, okay, why are you putting worship in the hijack section, <laughs> right? Um, let me start this way. Uh, I was um, preparing this study, or in my study here, and just being blown away and overwhelmed by the worship that I'm finding in Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, looking at Revelation. I was so overwhelmed that I got up from my study, and I went to my wife. She's not in here. And I said, how did we get to this place? This is what I told her. She's right there. She'll tell you, I just left my study. I'm like, wife, how did we get to this place where worship has become this just dormant, reserved, just like when I read the psalmist, all of this expression, this jubilant praise, like Psalms 98 where the psalmist says the river is even clapping. I'm like, how did we get to this place in the church where we just go to church and we sing about the glory of God and that's not what you find in the scriptures. And so it just really bothered me. I just stopped what I'm doing because I'm like, how did we get here? And we got here through a lot of different things. We got here through uh, church, largely. You had different denominations where they stopped using instru instruments altogether. Um, their argument would be uh, the New Testament doesn't say anything about instruments, so we don't use instruments. But the New Testament also doesn't forbid it. And we also see in the New Testament, particularly in Ephesians 5.19, that they were singing psalms. And if you are singing psalms, meaning you're singing psalms like Psalms 119 and 50. And so you would see that they're using instruments and you would see that they're clapping their hands. So um, I, I don't know if that's a real strong argument. And not only that, you go to Revelations, Revelation, not with an S, Revelation, and you find the 24 elders there, they're praising God with a harp. So I'm just like, I'm seeing Old Testament, crazy, expressive, jubilant worship. I'm seeing the same thing in Revelation, elders with harps bowing down, expressing worship. So I'm like, where did we get this from? So that's what I hope to kind of dig into um, through this series, looking at worship, looking at music, looking at our response to worship. So that's one of the, the hijacked things I would say. I would say it's, it's dealt with a lot of church culture, church tradition, denominations, how um, some of the, the worship has gone by the wayside. Another way that worship has been hijacked from the believer is culture. We don't worship God, but we will worship culture. We will, in society, we will worship our favorite football team, our basketball team, or if we like a musician, we'll worship that musician. We'll give them praise. We will express, but when it comes to God, it doesn't. We don't do that. Another reason our, how our worship has been hijacked is our own flesh. We'll often say, well, I'm just reserved. That's just my type. I mean, I, I just don't express and show emotion that way. And, and I agree that's to an extent, yes, people have different uh, characteristics, but there should be some form of expression of worship. Yes, your volume may not be as high as mine where you're clapping and you're moving around, but sure, there, there is some type of expression that should come from 
meditating and pondering on the glories of God. And so we're going to look at that and uh, hopefully we can get a better understanding of how do we worship the Lord? What did it mean to truly worship God? And so today we're going to get into the foundations of worship. Before we get to like expression, which will be next week, today we're going to get to the foundations because if you don't have the foundation right, I don't care what song is saying, I don't care how good the musician is or whatever, if you don't have the foundation right in worship, your worship is going to be nothing. You must have the foundation of worship. And so that is what we'll look at today coming out of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And um, what I'm going to do We're going to look at verse 21 through 24, but I'm going to just read from 7 through 24. And the reason why is, um, you know, uh, last week I was talking about understanding the culture, right? Understanding the Hebraic Jewish culture and how that helps you to understand scripture and gives you a better understanding. Um, so I was watching this on Prime. It was on Prime. Um, there's a documentary. If you have Prime video, please watch this to help you understand culture the Hebrew culture. There's a documentary, PBS, it's probably like four or five uh, episodes long. And it just takes you, it's called The History of the Jewish People, or something like that, or The Jewish People. And I was watching episode two, and it just, man, it just kind of froze me up to see how they reverence God's word. Um, in this episode, they came in, they would take the scroll, they literally had a scroll, not Bibles like us, but they had a scroll and the person would walk in with the scroll and all the people would just marvel. He would open it up. Let's say whatever. It's just, let's just say it's Isaiah. And he'd walk in and with the scroll. And there was just this reverence in all of the audience. They're just looking. And he would go around in the pulpit just like this. And they're just reverencing God's word like this. And then they would have someone read God's word. And they believe God's word is so holy that you can't even touch it. So they had this stick that allows them to read God's word. And and she would just read it. They had this lady read it. And it was just like, it was just, just such respect and reverence for, for the word of God. And that's something I think we, we, we lose sometimes. You know, we want to get to our text. And then really, I'm speaking as a preacher now. We want to get to our text and then just go right into what we're going to say. But we must reverence this word of God. So I want to read, I'm going to read verse 7 through 24. And without commentary, just take it in. Take in God's word. This is Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. So let's take this word in. John chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 7. The word of God reads, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, and you who gave us the well and drank, from, um, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people, or you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship, who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Let's just go in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your mighty word, Lord God. Oh God, help us to see more of your truth, God, in your scripture. Lord, help us to grow closer to you, God, as we look at your word. Correct us, encourage us, show us where we fall short. Oh Lord God, show us how and what it means to truly worship you. God, we don't want our worship to be in vain. We don't want our worship to be the ways of the world. God, we want it to be, as you say it in your word. Show us what true worship looks like. Show us what true worship that the Father demands. This is our prayer, Lord God. Glorify your name through your word. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So that's the word of God for the people of God. Now, we read through that whole thing, but we're going to kind of pick up in the middle of the conversation. We're going to pick up around verse 19 or 15. And so what we see here is we have Jesus. He's with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And he's having a conversation with this woman, right? He's asking for a drink. She's shocked that he asked for a drink. And then the conversation turns from living water, H2O and, and living water, the turns. The conversation turns instantly from that to a conversation about her marital status. Isn't that a jump, right? Isn't that a change? We're talking about water over here, H2O, Jesus said living water, and that conversation just jumps all of a sudden to this woman's marital status, history. Jesus exposes this woman's past without this woman even saying a word. She didn't say anything about her past. But yet Jesus knew it all. Why? Because if you recall in chapter 2 of the book of John, verses around 23 to 25, after Jesus had performed many signs and miracles, the Bible says that many people were coming to Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to people, the scripture says. Even the ones that were believing him. And the scripture says, why? Because Jesus knew all men and that he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus Christ knows man in a general sense, yes. And he also knew this woman. 
He knew this woman's past. He knew everything about her. And guess what? He also knows about you and me. He knows everything about us. So question is, why do we hide from the Lord? Why do we not confess our sins? Why do we think we're concealing something when he knows all about us? So my brothers and sisters, just go and confess your sins. Confess what's going on. He knows you. He knows you inside and out. So Jesus is beginning to dig into this woman's past without her permission. He's telling this woman what she's currently doing, what she has done in the past. And this woman realizing, having told this man not one thing, she realizes that she's in the presence of someone special. She realizes he's just not a normal man. And so she says in verse 19, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. This lady is blown away by Jesus' ability to look into her past. She's so blown away that when the disciples return, guess what? She up and leaves her water pot. The thing that she came to do, her water, she up and leaves her water pot. And she goes back into the city and she tells the city, the people in Samaria, about Jesus. She tells them to come see a man who's told me, all the things that I have done. Come see a man. Now, did Jesus really tell her literally about everything that she has done? No, that's not what's recorded. But here's the thing. When you, when you have a sin problem in your life, when you have a, a guilt problem in your life, that issue consumes you. That, that issue or that problem becomes your everything that I have done wrong. That becomes all of your world. See, yes, she's using hyperbole probably to, just to, to speak on Jesus and what he's telling her. But to her, she is consumed by this, this marriage thing that she has going on. It, it's bothersome to her. Why? Because look, you, you can tell because in this conversation that Jesus has with her, he tells her that they will no longer worship in the mountain that her and her family has, has worshipped at for years, Mount Gerizim. He says, no longer in this mountain. Jesus is literally changing the whole Samaritan's identity because their identity was tied to this mountain because they had a temple up there. And Jesus is telling this woman that that is no longer going to be a place where people will go and worship God. She doesn't even mention that to the people. She doesn't even say that he's going to be destroying or taking down our temple, that we're no longer be going to be uh, going up to Mount Gerizim to worship God. She says nothing at all about that. See, if, if, if that was a Jewish person in Jerusalem and they heard Jesus say that you are not going to go to the temple and worship anymore, do you know how much outrage there would be? How, how big of an issue that would be? Why? Because the whole Jewish identity was tied to the temple. The same thing with the Sumerians. We even find in the book of Acts with Gentiles. Do you remember when Paul was speaking in Ephesus? And he was sharing the gospel with so many in Ephesus that many of the people that were worshiping Diana was no longer worshiping Diana, but they were converting to Christianity. And some of the men who were making shrines to Diana, they wanted to call him out on that because, one, their business was at stake. And they realized that what Paul was doing would lead to people no longer worshiping Diana. So even the Gentiles were up in a fuss when it came to Somebody taking down something that they claim their identity, but not this woman when she went to go and tell the people. When she went to go, she said, come see a man that has told me everything that I've done, her sin, her problem that she has had in her marital life. That was a big deal to this woman. Now imagine this. Imagine this. You're like this woman. You are in the presence of a prophet. 
in the presence of a prophet. And, and this, this person has already demonstrated their prophetic powers by telling you something accurately, by digging into your past, you not telling them anything. They've already demonstrated they have prophetic powers or ability, I shouldn't say, yeah. What, do you, what would be your next question to that prophet? Many of us would probably speak and ask a prophet to tell us something uh, about the future that's going to come up, right? We already seen that they have prophetic powers. We already seen that they can look into our history. We would probably think about some things that maybe they could tell us about the future, um, something that we don't know, something that's going on. We would want to speak to this prophet to see if they had any special insight. But that's not what this woman does. That's not what the Samaritan woman does. Notice the first thing that comes out of her mouth when she perceives that at the very least, Jesus is a prophet. The first words that come out of her mouth when she perceives that Jesus is a prophet, it is about worship. That's the first thing that comes out of her mouth. It's about worship, the location of worship. In 19, she says, sir, you are a prophet. She immediately jumps to saying, our fathers worship in this mountain. She's talking about worship, the, the, the Greek word proskuneo, and the Hebrew word shaha, which means to bow down. This is what worship means, to bow down, to pay homage. It speaks to like a, a dog, when a dog would come and lick and kiss your finger. That, that, that's proskuneo, is to bow down, generally on your knees, maybe even put your forehead and touch the ground, and you would pay homage and worship. That, that's what worship in it. And, and worship is different. I want to bring this out. Worship is different from praise. Sometimes in churches, we'll say it's time for praise and worship, but worship and praise are different. Worship is about your posture, it's about the posture. It's about you getting rid of yourself, getting low and saying this person that you are worshiping, you are greater than I, you are better than I. But praise is the words that we attribute to this person that we are worshiping. It's words of thanksgiving, words of, of, of um, speaking on their glory, talking about their majesty. That is praise. What I do with a song, what I get in my harp, now I'm praising the person that we see in the psalmist. They're now praising that deity that they are worshiping. So praise and worship are similar, but they are distinct. Worship is the posture. Praise is what we begin to attribute to the person that we are worshiping. So praise and worship. So we see this lady, she's asking, Jesus, where do you proskuneo at? Right? How do you worship? My people say, God is here in his mouth and it's where you worship. Your people say, no, God, the sinner is in Jerusalem. That is where you worship. Now, many commentators in this verse, verse 20, many commentators or some commentators believe that the lady was pivoting. They believe she was pivoting or deflecting, meaning she was trying to switch the topic. Because Jesus did something that they do in the streets. In the streets, they say, somebody has pulled your card. When somebody says something that just exposes you, they say, they just pulled your card. And so Jesus just pulled her card. And, and people say she was trying to get off of that subject because she didn't really want to get into it. And so she immediately deflected to talk about this, this topic. But I don't believe that's what the lady was doing. I don't believe she was deflecting and trying to get off the topic. The reason I don't believe that is... Because what I find in verse 9, what I find in verse 9 of chapter 4 is this. When Jesus initially came and spoke to the Samaritan woman, what did the Samaritan woman say to Jesus? 
How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? See, the Jews and Samaritan had this beef. And this, this beef, this problem that they had was on the, the top or the front of all of their minds. That is why when, 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 she, when, G, when she realizes Jesus is a prophet, she now wants to get an answer to that age-old question about the place of worship. Why? Because that is readily in front of her mind. That, that is something that the Samaritans and the Jews had this problem with. It's where it's the correct place of worship. And so they, ha- they had a problem because one group said it has to be over here, and another group said it had to be over here. And so when she first interacts with Jesus, she, she's... She's wondering, like, why are you talking to me? You, you know we don't communicate with one another. You know we disagree on where the, place, the center place of God is. And, and yet you're talking to me. So this tells me that that was pressing on her. That was on her mind. She has this prophet in front of her. And now she wants to get some assurance on this place of worship that her people have done versus where the Jews say worship should be. So she, she, she's not deflecting here, I don't believe. I believe she, she really wants to get down to the nitty-gritty. Why? Because this is something at the front of the Samaritan and, and the Jews. This is the front of their mind. So now let's, using our, sanctimi, our, our sanctified imagination, l- let's picture this, right? You, there's a, a Jew at the well. You're a Samaritan woman, and you're walking up, and there's a Jewish person, a man at the well. And notice, Jesus didn't say that he was Jewish. She obviously could tell by the way that he looked that he was Jewish. She could probably tell by his clothing, all of his features, that she was Jewish, that he was a first century Palestinian Jew, not the Hollywood American Jew, the blonde hair, the the, the blue eyes, the pale skin that we see in many movies, which in many communities of color, this may be offensive to some, but this is a popular saying. Brother Anthony brought it out at our man's group. Many communities of color call that Jesus white Jesus. And yes, it doesn't matter what color. You're right. It doesn't matter what color Jesus was. But since we believe in truth, let's let facts be facts and reality be reality. I always give this example when I have discussions with people on this topic. And that is, if I gave you a card, I said, I have a basketball card with LeBron James on it. And the card said LeBron James, and it had all of his statistics on there of what LeBron James did. But on the front of the card, there was a white guy that looked like he was from Alabama on there. You would be like, the card says LeBron James, but that's not LeBron James, right? That's, That's not him, right? The card doesn't match up with the reality and the facts. We want the facts to match up with the true reality. The true reality is that Jesus was a first century, again, Palestinian Jew not the Hollywood Jesus that you see in many of our movies, which, to give you a little nugget, especially those who are doing evangelism in communities of color, this is a hot topic right now. I've dealt with this topic a lot of times when I talk to other of my brothers and sisters in Christ, or not in Christ, but just believers. They have a problem with this image that we created, and it goes back into, I want to get into the, people talk about white supremacy and all this. I'm not going to get near, but that image can be a burden to the gospel for some folks. So just be aware of that when you're going up to communities of color that this will come up because I've seen it coming up. So the Samaritan woman, she's walking up to the well, and I can just imagine her walking up saying, oh, man, it's a Jew right there. Let me get this water and leave. I ain't saying nothing. We don't talk with these Jews. So I can imagine, again, we don't know this. I'm just trying to use my sanctified imagination to kind of bring it to a context. So I don't know that's what she was saying. But she's walking up, 
Let's chill. If we don't deal with them, let me get this water. Give me this water and turn around. I don't want to say nothing. He better not say nothing to me. <laughs> and so she goes to the water, and what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus opens his mouth and says, give me a drink. And her mind is blown. Why? Because this Jewish person is now speaking to me, a Samaritan. And again, if, if you don't understand the history of the Jews and Samaritan, you will not get the gravity of this text. Now, some of you do know this because I know some of you st study in the scriptures and you, you dig, but I'm going to just give you a little brief history of hundreds of years in about a few seconds. So the Jews and Samaritans, they have beef. They have a problem. Why? Because the Jews believe the Samaritans are a mixed breed. They don't believe that the Samaritans are pure Israelites. Why? Because when the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians, um, that kingdom allowed different exiles from other nations to come and live in Samaria. Uh, Samaria. And the Israelites were left, that were left in Samaria, they began to kind of intermingle with those people from different nations. They began to marry some of those people from different nations. They began to take on their gods, to take on God's lordgy. They began to take on their gods. They began to take on their, their practices. And so they weren't considered to be pure Israelites. So that, that's one reason. Um, also, in the... Uh, in the second building of the temple, when Ezra and Nehemiah went back, do you remember they building up the temple and building up the wall? Uh, Jews, they wouldn't allow the Samaritans to even participate in the building of those walls. You can find this in the book of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah 13.28, if you want to read on your own time. There was this, this priest, right? There was this priest who had married a Samaritan, and uh, Nehemiah didn't allow this priest into the worship. And so historians say either it was after this moment that the um, Samaritans went to Mount uh, Gerizim and built their temple, or it was even prior before this moment that the temple was already built. But it was somewhere around this time where Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. The Jews would go and worship in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans would go to the mountain, Mount Gerizim, and they had their temple, and they would worship there. And so that's how this split came. And not only that, but the Samaritans... After this, this period, um, they really developed their own identity. They believed that it was Mount Gerizim, that that was the chosen place of God, that that was the, the center of worship where it should be, and not in Jerusalem, which would be offensive to, to Jews. They even called Mount Gerizim the navel, the navel of the earth. Um, the Samaritans believed that the dust of Adam came from Mount Gerizim. See, you see how they're making their own identity? They believed that Noah erected the, his altar on Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans believed that they are the true heirs of the Mosaic tradition, not the Jews in Jerusalem. So now you can see why there is this beef, why there was such a big idea, why she was so off guard when Jesus mentions that he wanted some water. She's like, hold on, I, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? So that is why there was such hostility. So in this text, back to where we are. So again, this, this lady, this Samaritan woman, she's realizing at the very least that Jesus is a prophet. And so again, she brings up this age-old question about the place of worship. Remember the Jews say Jerusalem, we say Mount Gerizim. So she's basically saying, what say you Jesus, right? What say you, where is the place that we ought to worship? Where is the center where God dwells? Where's the place where his presence dwells? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? What say you Jesus? And what does Jesus say in verse 21? 
In verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So Jesus' answer, if you will, and she doesn't ask the question, but she's getting at this, but Jesus makes the point to say it is neither. It is neither at, at Mount Gerizim where you Samaritans go and worship, and it's neither um, in Jerusalem. He said there's coming a time where it won't be there or won't be in Jerusalem. There's coming this time. So yes, worship will still be taking place in the future, he shows us. We know that from Revelation. We see that worship is always going to take a place. But when it comes to location, Jesus doesn't say a location. That is the response that Jesus, when he responds to this woman, he doesn't say it's going to be in this particular location. No, that is not what he says. He does not give her an exclusive place where God's presence will dwell. But what does he tell her? Skip down to 23. We're going to go back to 22 later, but I want you to skip down to 23. Look what he tells her. Look how he responds to her. He tells her that an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship the Father and Spirit and in truth. He said there's an hour that is coming and now is where the true worshiper will worship in spirit and truth. Now this revelation clearly went over the Samaritan woman's head. Why? Because as I mentioned earlier, when she goes back to her people, she mentions nothing of this new form. See, Jesus is totally trans or deconstructing the Samaritan type worship. He's, he's taking her whole identity away by saying you will no longer go to Gerizim. And she doesn't even realize it. She doesn't even realize that with Jesus' statement right here that, she, that he is dismantling location religion, all of those sacred places that many people have have made that Jesus right here is dismantling that location religion which makes room for us to come to this house church and begin to worship God which allows us to even go in a warehouse if we choose to begin to create a church there and worship God which allows churches to go into schools and to go there and worship God which allows churches to go into a park and have their place of worship there Jesus eliminates that exclusivity of location worship location religion and this lady has no idea of the depth of what Jesus is saying in this verse she has no idea that what Jesus just said how there will be no exclusive place of worship is going to bring together many Jews and Samaritan when the gospel goes forward see the Samaritans were some of the first to believe the gospel when it went forward in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, with, with Philip, when Philip goes down to Samaria, he preaches the gospel. He preaches Jesus. And guess what? Some of those Samaritans believe. That few, that beef that, that the Jews and the Samaritan had, guess what? Through the gospel, that beef gets squashed. And that's the same thing even in our culture. The only way we're going to see true racial harmony in this world is through the gospel. The gospel is the only thing. The gospel is the thing that combines us, that says that we are all sinners and that we are all in need of a Savior. That salvation binds us. And it was that salvation that helped bring about the end of the beef between the Jews and the Samaritans who believe. See, Jesus' statements that he was making about the time coming were huge statements. The fact that he said there's no longer going to be a location, it's no longer about a place, I mean, that's the end of temple sacrifice. See, Jesus' statement here 
It's huge. Jesus' statement to this woman is truly good news. But the woman, she fully didn't get the good news, the depths of what Jesus was saying. Why? Well, we know because the Holy Spirit wasn't freely given at that point in time. She didn't have the full revelation. The Holy Spirit wasn't freely given at that time. Why? Because Jesus had not yet, had not yet been glorified. And not only that, you must understand, when Jesus made these statements to this Samaritan woman, guess what? They were still under the old covenant. You must understand that. Remember, they were still, the old covenant was still intact when Jesus made these comments. The Jews were still going to the temple to um, perform uh, sacrificial sacrifices. Um, they were still going to Jerusalem for holy days and festivals. They were still under the old covenant. Remember, a covenant in the Bible has to be made or ratified in blood. Jesus had not yet gone to the cross to shed his blood to institute the new covenant. You must understand that they're still under the old covenant. That old covenant is still in effect, which gives us light into why Jesus says in verse 21 that an hour is coming. He's, in 21, he didn't say an hour is coming and now is, but an hour is coming. See, he says that because that old covenant, as I mentioned, was in effect. And, and what I want to do, I want to show you the distinction between Jesus saying the hour is coming versus the hour is coming and now is. Because in verse 23, when he says the hour is coming and now is, he's talking about the worshiper, worship it in spirit and truth. In verse 21, when he says the hour is coming, has not yet come, he's talking about the location. So these are two different topics, two different things. And what we find in the Bible that this is not Jesus' first time using this phrase. I want to show you this. We see here in chapter 4 he uses this phrase, the hour is coming, and now is, and the hour is just coming. But also in chapter 5, look in chapter 5 and look how he uses this word. Chapter 5, verse 25. He says this here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and what? Now is. Just like what we just seen in uh, 423. An hour is coming, now is, meaning it's immediate. It's about to happen. It's happening right now. It's something that's happening in the immediate future. It's more present. And he's talking about, he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will hear and will live. Here he's not talking about a physical resurrection. That's a little bit later down in that text. But he's talking about people hearing the word of Jesus and the dead spiritually coming to life when they hear the gospel going forward. And he said that that time is actually happening now. So that's more present. That's right now. And that's how we're using the hours coming and the time now is. He's talking about something that's more immediate. Now look in, uh, turn to John 16. John chapter 16. A few pages. I want you to see how he uses it here. John chapter 16, verse 2. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then we'll read down. He says, these things, he's talking to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He says, they will make you outcast from the synagogue. Here we go. But an hour is coming. He doesn't say, now he is, right? He just says, an hour is coming. For everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So now he's talking about a future event that's going to happen. Right? Disciples are not being killed right now. Right? Not at all. 
Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He's speaking about a future event that's not yet quite immediate, but it is coming. So as he says, the time is coming. He doesn't say the time has come and now is. Right? He's talking about a future event. Look at 32. Same chapter. Chapter 16, 32. Look at what he says here. He says, behold, behold, an hour is coming and already has come. For you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. Now he's talking about something that's immediate, more immediate that's about to happen, right? Jesus is going to get taken. What's going to happen? All of his disciples are going to begin scattering and running and not even acting like they know Jesus. Do you see the difference now between a time is coming and a time is coming and now is? Are, are we seeing that? Clear? Okay, I need you guys to be with me here. So now let's go back to our text. Four. So when Jesus says in 21 to the woman that an hour is coming, I believe that he's partially speaking to the fact that the Romans are going to destroy the temple and literally it would be destroyed and it would no longer be a place of worship. Right. So I believe he's partially speaking to that. And also the uh, Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, that would also be destroyed. That little temple that they had on that mountain, that too would be destroyed. They even at one point built a mosque up there. Like it really got taken over. So Jesus is, is true in that, yes, you would not longer do worship in those physical places. But again, he's also pointing to the fact that worship would not be tied to a particular location. That worship would not be tied to an one earthly place, which again is good news for us. See, this is good news for us that it's no longer at Jerusalem that I got to go to worship God and, and not only that you got to think about it during this period of time when the old covenant was standing only the high priest can go into the holy of holies and really enter into the presence of God and even prior to the high priest only Moses would be able to go and have a relationship and really enter into the presence of God but now Jesus is ushering in this more intimate worship, this, this intimate worship of worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. See, this is a big deal, my brothers and sisters. This is really good news that Jesus is saying here, that you can have this deep, intimate access with God that is no longer tied to you going through a high priest or Moses, but that you too can go intimately and deeply with God. And that is what we find throughout scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have for God? He's talking about this intimate worship. Colossians 1.27 To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. See, to worship God in spirit is to worship God by the Holy Spirit in contrast to the external religious worship of the day. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. That's this intimate worship compared to what they were doing with these rituals. See, you, are, you don't know how good you got it, my brothers and sisters, how you can go and worship God. They didn't have this. This, this is intimate worship, and I think we, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that when we go and we proskuneo, we, we bow down and pray homage to God and, and our spirit didn't commune with the Holy Spirit and we, we are filled with the divine presence and we feel like we can explode from joy in the Lord. You must understand what you are doing is something that many Israelites knew nothing about. 
this deep spirit worship, they knew nothing about what you do. This relationship that you have with God, this, this Holy Spirit now living inside of you so that you can now commune with God. They knew nothing about this. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is bringing in good news even in the worship that we do of God. All of the Old Testament worship, it was, it was worship at a distance. See, it was only by God's grace that he allowed the sacrificial system in so that the worshiper could go and worship God. But they had to approach through the blood of animals. And they had, again, they had to go through a, a high priest. The, the common man or woman could not enter into the holies of holies. They could not go into the presence of God. But now... We can go, we can go and worship God. We can go and commune with God. The true worshiper can have that intimate divine worship by the Spirit. And Jesus says, this is the worship that the Father is seeking. Not the external worships of yesterdays, of rituals, of, of washings of hands and, and, and bulls and, and goats and all that. He, that's not it. He says the Father is seeking true, real, genuine worshipers. And this word seeking is more or less not in the sense of the Father searching, but it's, it's more of the Father is desiring, wanting this intimate, true worship versus the ceremonial rituals and all those different things. And so this is why you have different Bible translations that tr uh, translate verse 23 different from the word seeking. For example, the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 23 when it talks about seeking. It says, yes, the Father wants people to worship him, um, to worship him. So they use the word want versus seeking. Um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does the same thing. They, they translate 23 by saying, yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. And the Weymouth New Testament translates the verse seeking as the Father desires such worshipers. So this is the worship that the Father wants. This is what he's looking for. He's looking for true worshipers who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth, he's looking for people who are going to worship him in the essence that he is. Because Jesus says that God is spirit. And so we must worship him in the essence, in the realm of who he is. Meaning spirit to spirit worship. This is true worship. Worshiping God in the essence of who he is versus the external things that we may do. Now, the question may be... Um, how does this work, this spirit-to-spirit this -spirit worship, communing God intimately? Well, it's the Holy Spirit going and communing with our spirit and revealing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to worship. It's the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts, not our physical hearts, but in the spirit so that we may know the love of God. And guess what? That brings us to worship, Romans 5.5. 5. It's the Holy Spirit going forth and pouring in our heart the mind to say, God is my Abba. He's my daddy. And guess what? That brings us to true worship. That's Galatians 4.6. It's the Holy Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And guess what? That brings us to worship. Romans 8.16. So it is the Holy Spirit that brings us to God. It is the Holy Spirit that brings us to truth. And these Samaritans, they were not worshiping in truth. See, the Samaritans had changed the location of the temple, which was not in truth with what the scripture says. 
They were not worshiping in truth. The Samaritans instituted their own priestly line, which is not in line with the scriptures. The Samaritans believed that the Messiah or salvation will be coming through them. But Jesus says, no, that salvation is coming through the Jews. See, they were not worshiping in truth. See, truth has to be a part of your worship. You cannot worship without truth. To, to worship without truth is the equivalent of worshiping the unknown God. And that is what the Apostle Paul was accusing the people on Mars Hill, Hill about. Do you remember that in Acts 17? Let's, let's turn there real quick. Acts 17. I don't hear pages turning. It's not good. Acts 17. just want to show you this. Verse 23, this is Paul at Mars Hill. Look what he says here. Paul says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, so they're doing their proskuneo, he says, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So they were even worshiping this unknown God, right? He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, they're lacking truth. They don't know. He says, this I proclaim to you. And from there, Paul begins to do what? He begins to give them truth. He begins to give them truth. He tells them about their own sin. He begins to tell them the truth about their judgment to come. He begins to tell them about repentance. He begins to tell them about Jesus. He gives them truth. So they were just worshiping without truth. And worship without truth is just pointless. If, you, if you're just worshiping what you do not know, see, you must know what God has done. You, you must know Jesus and the gospel. That, that is essential to your worship. You must know Jesus. You must know what he has done on the cross. You must reflect on your salvation. That, that must be involved in your worship on the first level. That, that is the first level. When we come time to worship, we must reflect on the gospel. We must reflect on that we were sinners separated from God, headed to eternal damnation. We must reflect on that as our first level, our primary level of worship. And then on our secondary level, we begin to reflect on God taking us through our circumstances. And we experience this true in those circumstances. We, we must reflect on how we were broken and God brought us out. How we were in tough situations and God brought us out. See, we begin to work up on the, the first level. We begin to focus on the gospel as we begin to worship God. But then we also can go on that secondary level that's unique to each individual individual person. Each person has gone through trials and has witnessed God's glory come and bring them out. And it is those things that we begin to think on that brings us to a place of worship. See, truth has to be in your worship, my brothers and sisters. It has to be there. And that was one of the things that was lacking in the Samaritan worship. Not only that, the Samaritans, like the Sadducees, they only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. That was the only part that they believed it was God breathed. So again, right there, they're missing out on a whole bunch of truth. See, they, they had the external religious worship, but they had no truth in their worship. Think about this. If you were a spectator and you were watching the Samaritans, you watched them sacrifice the goat, you're watching them march up to Mount Gerizim, maybe singing, you would say, yeah, those people are, are worshiping God. And, and that's the same thing what, what we see in today's church. We, we see people that go to church, they're clapping, they're singing, they're rejoicing, they're dancing. 
But guess what? If their worship has no truth in it, then their worship is just pure emotions and feelings. Just pure emotions. See, without truth, worship becomes all emotion and feelings. Yes, the Hebrew people were a visceral people that looked deep into the inner um, of, of the soul to understand things. But guess what? They also had a mind. They also believed in the intellect. Brothers and sisters, you need truth to worship God. It can't just be based on feelings on how I feel today. Because, you know, our days are ups and downs when we're feeling good. Certain days we feel good. We are ready to worship. Certain days we come in here, man, I'm just, yeah. We're not feeling it. Why? We can't base our worship on how we feel and feelings. But worship has to be based on truth. Those primary and secondary levels. The primary level of the gospel and also our secondary level of our own interaction with God. You have to think on those things. So again, as I mentioned, the Hebrew people, they, yes, they were visceral people. We looked at that last week, but they also believed in the intellect. And one of the examples of that is in Luke 10, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer, the Hebrew Jewish lawyer. And the conversation is on inheriting eternal life. And so the lawyer says this to Jesus on how to inherit eternal life. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He says, with all your strength, and guess what? And all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And what did Jesus say to that lawyer? You have answered correctly. The mind must be involved in worship. Not just feelings, not just emotions, but you must know truth. What does Romans 12, 2 tell us? To be transformed by the renewing of our what? Mind. Your mind matters. Truth has to be in worship. And I know we can criticize the really charismatic Pentecostal person that's dancing around and maybe they have a little truth, but I also want to remind you the other end of that spectrum, the erudite, reformed, all intellect, all doctrine, no emotions person. Both of them people are equally wrong. Both. Yes, we need the intellect and the mind, but we also express it in our feelings and our emotions. It is both. It's not all one way and it's not all the other way. It's both. So Jesus shows and pulls out to the Samaritan that they were worshiping what they did not know. I mean, that Samaritans had no truth in their worship. They had no truth. You need truth. And guess what? Jesus is ultimately that truth. You can't worship God without Jesus. Because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the sin offering. He is the guilt offering. He is the peace offering. He's the one that, bring, that brings peace between man and God. You have to have that truth. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. We must have truth in our worship. Yes, we worship in spirit. Our spirit, communing with the Holy Spirit, but we have to have truth in our mind and understanding of what God has done in the gospel and what God has done in your own life. That is the foundations of worship, my brothers and sisters. Forget the music, forget the expression part right now. If you don't have this part right, you're going to be worshiping the unknown God. You're going to be worshiping what you do not know. You have to have these truths. Jesus said, the Father... It's wanting and looking for people to worship him in that way. 
in spirit and truth. I want to turn you to one last verse where Paul basically gives a parallel to this verse. Go to Philippians 3.3. 3. One last verse. Philippians 3.3. 3. Paul wants to encourage the church who are being criticized by those caught up in external religion. And so look what he tells the church. I'm starting to. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision. You guys with me? We are the true circumcision. Look what he says. Tell me if this sounds a lot like what we just read. Who worship in the spirit of God. And glory in Jesus Christ. I'm just stop there. And he says, puts no confidence in the flesh. But he says, we are the true circumcision that worship in the spirit of God, Holy Spirit, spirit, spirit worship, and Jesus Christ, which is our truth aspect of that phrase. That spirit and truth, worshiping in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, truth, Jesus, the living word made flesh, the word of God. That is how a person worships. Outside of that, you will be worshiping the unknown God. Outside of this, you will be worshiping in your feelings and your emotions. And that is not true worship. This is the foundations, my brothers and sisters. This is the thoughts that should come to our mind when we come here and we sing songs. We think about the truths of the word of God. The truth of the gospel, the truth of what we have witnessed with God in our own lives. That is true worship. That brings the soul and the spirit into true worship. That is essential. And that is why if you go on YouTube, many pastors will title this section of scriptures, The Foundations of Worship. Because this is essential to have. Now, next week, my brothers and sisters, we'll get into more expressions and looking at the Old Testament and different things like that. But today is just the foundations. Worship in spirit and truth. Holy Spirit, Jesus, gospel, the things you've seen Jesus in your life, that should bring you to true worship of the Father. That should bring you to proskuneo where you're bowing down. Praising God, worshiping, praying, giving homage, showing reverence and respect, not thinking about yourself, saying, God, you are greater. Why? Because of your works, which you have already demonstrated. That's worship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for instructing us on worship. Thank you for showing us the right way, Jesus. Oh, Lord, you're making a lighted path just by your words. Showing us how to come and approach you. Showing us how to worship the Father. Jesus, you are so set on glorifying your Father, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this understanding, Lord. We thank you for being good to us. Thank you for being God. Thank you for giving us yourself, God. Allowing us not have to go to a place, Lord to worship you where we are in spirit and in truth. We praise you, Lord. In your name, amen.